coming to you from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. This is Creator Talks, and I am your host, Christopher Calloway. This is the show, Wake the Kids, Phone the Neighbors. My guest today is Jason Fabok. Jason is the artist on the long-awaited miniseries, Batman, Three Jokers, which comes out August 25th. It is written by Jeff Johns, colors by Brad Anderson, and letters by Rob Lee. The miniseries is a three-part prestige format black label DC comic. It contains content for mature audiences only. Fans have been waiting for this title for a couple of years now, and it was delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but now at last it is coming out. The seeds for Three Jokers were planted in Justice League. Batman learned to the Mobius chair that there are three Jokers. So Batman Three Jokers is a detective story, a mystery to be solved by Batman, Batgirl, and Red Hood, all victims of the Joker. So I go back to the beginning to find out how Jason broke into comics, how he landed the gig working on Justice League, and about working with the creative team on Three Jokers, the series writer Jeff Johns, and colorist Brad Anderson, and why Jason insisted that he do all the variant covers for the series, and why Alan Moore and Brian Boland's The Killing Joke has been on his desk as a reference while illustrating Three Jokers. Of course, I kick back with the creator to learn about Jason's island book, his beverage of choice, and his action figure accessory, and more. But we'll open our conversation, finding out how Jason's doing during the pandemic, and we'll talk a bit about hockey. Please join me in welcoming an artist's work, which includes Justice League, Batman Eternal, Detective Comics, Batman, and Three Jokers. Jason Fabok, here now on Creator Talks. Jason, welcome to Creator Talks. How's it going? It's going. I thought it was the next day of the week. Today was so crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, every day just like seems to, uh, you know, just meld in with the with the last day and the next day. And uh, sometimes I forget, you know, when the weekend's even coming up, it just all of a sudden is there. And yeah, and that's one of the bad parts about being stuck at home, I guess, is that everything just seems like the same day. There's nothing to do on the weekends. It's like, what do you want to do? I don't know. What's safe to do? I don't know. It's so... <laughs> yeah. But they're really kind of laid back weekends because we don't really plan anything. We had all kinds of plans that we wanted to do this summer. And then with all this stuff that has been happening, you know, all of that stuff is out the window. So, you know, we're trying to figure out little things to do for day trips with the kids. And, you know, we've been doing some hikes and some walks and things like that. But uh, my brother has a cabin up north in northern Ontario. So we're going to head up there this coming weekend and spend a week there. So that's our summer vacation, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's a great idea. That really is yeah. a good idea. That's all we've been doing is hiking. We've driven to places that were nearby that were kind of out of the way and have just done that and we were planning to go to the east coast in august and now it's like i don't know we got tickets we have the refundable you can change into a different date i'm thinking we might do that i just don't feel that great about going out east right now where do you live i am in las vegas and i used to live in wilmington delaware Hmm. So I'd fly into Philly. I don't even know if they'd let me in there right now. <laughs> it's just kind of a hot spot in the country at this moment. Yeah, we have good friends of ours. Like I live in Canada. Actually, I think we could travel into the States if we wanted to. But then depending on where you go, then you have to, they might quarantine you there for two weeks. And so, and then when you fly back, they might quarantine you back here again. So it's just, I think it's more hassle than it's worth right now. So we're just going to explore uh, places that we can just drive to. Yeah, that's the easiest thing to do. Being in Canada. 
And I'm not saying this just because you're from Canada. How is life without hockey right now? Well, when it comes to watching hockey on TV, it's weird, but I really haven't been missing it. Around now, I guess the playoffs kind of ending right around now. So that would be kind of interesting to watch. And they're going to be starting that up soon. I believe. But for me, the thing I really miss is I play summer hockey. I play a couple times during the week through the winter. And then I play with the same group of guys. Uh, One of the local rinks here keeps its ice in all summer. And so we play summer hockey. And that was a lot of the exercise that I would get, you know, burning off energy and getting some frustration out. It was really nice to be able to do that. With everything being shut down, I I don't even know if they'll start up our normal hockey come October or September. I think it will be done for a while. But uh, I've been going out and trying to do bike rides, and we have a nice trail here that's just pretty flat, and you can just go for hours and hours. And I've been trying to get out and do that once every couple days, you know, to get some exercise because – like we were saying, like you're stuck inside for months there. There wasn't much to do. You couldn't really go anywhere. And so you feel so sluggish. And I found just getting out and taking a bike ride has been really, really nice to recharge the batteries in your mind and get out into nature and get some exercise. So I miss playing hockey. Like that was a huge part of my week. Fingers crossed everything kind of gets back to normal here soon. And <laughs> we can start playing in October because I need it. And I hope it gets back to it here. Not that I'm a big sports fan, but... Las Vegas is home of the Golden Knights, and that is a big deal in this city. Big deal. So it hurts when they're not playing. And they just added a new team, an affiliate team, the uh, Henderson Silver Knights. So, yeah, so it hurts the economy big time. And I know the fans are going crazy not being able to see their team. NHL is picking some hub cities, and I know Vegas was one of the ones they were talking about. I haven't heard if they've. (laughs) No. Oh, they they didn't get chosen. I heard we did not get chosen. No. Probably because of the situation right now with things being hot in the southwest and south as far as coronavirus so yeah, i think that's okay. why yeah well on to lighter things <laughs> we, can, we can talk about comics awesome <laughs> now i understand you graduated from an animation program and then you went to bible school and it was then that you decided yes i want to get into comic art explain to me going to bible school and then deciding art career in comics i grew up in a christian home and i grew up uh, going to church every Sunday and my dad taught Sunday school and my faith has always been very important to me. And, you know, all through my life, I've prayed about things and I've always just kind of trusted in God's direction for my life. And I've really tried to be open to what uh, I believe that God wants me to do. And when I finished high school, I didn't really know what I wanted. I wanted to actually be a filmmaker first. And I applied to a filmmaking school, a couple of them, and I didn't get in. I just didn't believe that I got shut down because I had perfect grades and I had everything that I felt I would need to get into the school and I and it got shut down and I remember at that time like being very angry with God praying and saying you know why you knew this was my dream how can you shut this door and a little while later I decided to start looking into animation because I felt it was a mixture of film and art I had always dreamed of doing comics, but never believed I was good enough to do it. To me, it wasn't really an option. It was like, yeah, it'd be cool to be a comic artist. But, you know, when I look at books by Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane and all these guys, I would sit there and think like, there's no way I could ever draw that well. Uh, Maybe I'll take this animation stuff and maybe I can work for Disney or I can work on cartoons or video games or whatever. 
And uh, while I was there and at that college, I went took three years uh, animation, learning both 3D and 2D animation traditional. While I was there, I kind of had a reawakening of my faith, and I really felt like God wanted me to go to Bible college. And so I pretty much gave up everything at that point. I had actually been offered a few jobs to some animation studios right out of college, and I turned them down, and my professors thought I was nuts, and and I went off to Bible college, and it was meant to be, because when I was there, I met my wife. Uh, When I was there, I really feel like I strengthened my foundation of kind of like my morals, my beliefs, what I believed in. I strengthened my work ethic. I was really able to just become a better person. Uh, I understood what I believed more. And I started really just asking God while I was there, like, what do you want me to do with my life? I didn't feel like I was being called into ministry or to be a pastor or anything like that. I really felt like God wanted to use my art in some way. And then through a connection that I had, I was working on a portfolio. I kind of got fired up again for comics. Mm -hmm. And I started working on a portfolio. And a friend of mine knew David Finch. And uh, he lived in my area back back home here in Windsor. And I had this little portfolio made. And I asked this friend of mine, I actually went to St. Clair College to the animation program with him. I said, can you get me Dave's email? I would just like to send my portfolio and see if he'll give me a critique. Like that's all I wanted, right? I sent it to him. He looked it over and he got back to me within a couple of days and he just said, hey, can you come over to my place? I'm like six hours away. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So I think I drove down and I went to his place and he critiqued my work and he tore it to shreds. He just pointed out everything that was wrong. But he said, I think you got something here. We have to make it better. And so I had finished my year at the Bible school, at the Bible college, and I was kind of working in the offices doing video and uh, work for their camps. They had a camp program for kids. And so I was doing all these like video work and really funny sort of things with them and and graphic design. So I just kind of quit all that and I moved back home and I started going over to David Finch's house like every other day. I would go to his place. He would give me kind of a project. He'd be like, okay, like I remember the first one was working on buildings. He showed me how how to draw buildings. And then he told me to go home and he said, here, here's a piece of paper. Go home and draw me a, a whole city. And then he's like, and then come back in like a day. So I went home and I drew the city and then I drew another city and another one. And I came back with maybe like three pages worth of all these cities from different angles. Right. And I think that kind of impressed him. Like I was always taught like to go over and above. Somebody tells you to to draw one thing, you come back with three things. You show them that you really wanted it. And I really wanted to prove to him that I wanted this opportunity. Then he would send me back and he would have me draw something different. He would critique my work. Dave is a really truthful guy. Like I can't do what he does. Like when somebody asks me for a portfolio review, I'm awful at it because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Dave, he doesn't care. He just wants to tell you the truth because he wants you to get better and he wants you to uh, see where you're gone wrong. And he was just very truthful. He'd be like, this here is not good. This here's not good. This here's not good. This here is good. You know, you got to. And so this happened and I kept going to his house every couple days for about six months. It started with buildings, then it went to the human body, then it was like focusing just on 
drawing the human head and eyes and noses and then it was hands and then let's put that all together and now we're drawing full torsos and bodies and male female uh here's how you exaggerate parts now we're going to do shadows and it was it was like i've jokingly called it a comic book boot camp because that's how it really was it was like you'd go over there for maybe like half an hour and he was like a drill sergeant. He would rip into your work and show you where it was wrong. And it was great because it helped me build up a thick skin. That's something that you need in this industry because you'll think you drew the greatest thing ever. And an editor will, you know, some of them will tell you, well, I don't like this or I want you to change this. And it feels personal, you know, when somebody attacks or not attacks, but somebody critiques your art, it can feel very personal. So he helped me build up a very thick skin during that time. And he helped me build the foundation, really. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. Uh, it was like the same thing, uh, you know, I went to Bible school because I wanted to build a foundation that I could build the rest of my life on with my faith. And then with Dave, it was like he was building the foundation for the art, the storytelling and the artistic side of things. And so it was awesome. And what he was actually really doing is he was training me to be like a pencil assist. So at that time, every once in a while, he was hiring these pencil assists to come in and help him with his tight deadlines. So he might focus on the characters and then rough in the background and then have you come in and you would draw all the tedious details so that he could keep moving forward. At that time, he had just transitioned over to DC and he wasn't doing any interior work, so he didn't need a pencil assist. And I wanted to get married. He knew that. And so he said, look, you're going to need some money. Let's see if we can get you some work. And so He wrote a little script for me. It was like five or six pages. And I spent weeks drawing this six-page little story. And then uh, we submitted that. And I was able to get work at DC Comics. That's kind of how everything sort of started from that point till now. So, yeah. Who reviewed your work at DC? Uh, I think it was Eddie Berganza at the time. He was the Superman uh, Superman editor. And so my first work was uh, Superman, Batman issue 70 and 71. I was just a fill in. I didn't even get credit on the cover of the book or anything like that, which was a major bummer, especially when you it's your first work, right? And you want to show people, but you're not on the cover or anything like that. But it was a stepping stone and it was necessary. Like it was necessary to start at a spot like that and be humbled a little bit and then have to work your way up. Well, when David later asked you to fill in for him on a couple of issues of The Dark Knight, after that, a couple months, it wasn't very long. It was just a couple weeks later, they offered you a two-year contract. Yeah. Why was that? Was it breaking in the sales or you were there and you could just do the work and the time needed? I don't think it was a sales thing. I think looking back on it, I think that I proved that I could handle the workload and I could do it at a high enough quality after I did those two issues of Superman, Batman, I didn't get any work for a little while. And I spent all my money on my first paycheck buying my wife an engagement ring. Right. So now I had no money. And I thought I was going to be continually getting work from this point on because that's what DC kind of was telling me. I wasn't getting any jobs. So this was the first year of C2E2 in Chicago back in 2010. So he said, why don't you come with me? I'm driving down. And bring your portfolio and we'll get it out to as many different people. We'll talk to Mark Silvestri at Top Cow and we'll talk to Aspen Comics and a couple other kind of smaller comic companies that I could maybe get some work with because DC just didn't seem like they were they had anything for me at the time. And it's understandable. Looking back at my work now, I'm like, yeah, 
it was pretty rough. And so we did that and I met the guys from Aspen Comics and they were like, yeah, we would love you to come work for us and you'll have lots of time to work and you can kind of learn the ropes. And so that's what I did for about eight months. I worked with Aspen and I learned the ropes and I had to teach myself how to hit a deadline. Like I had to teach myself, how do you draw 20 pages in a month? Those first couple books I did with Aspen were very, it took me like two and a half months to draw one issue. But then by the end, I was able to get it down to, I'm drawing a book within a month. And so at that point, I felt like I was ready to come back and to do a monthly book at DC. And so that's when Dave had offered me the job to fill in with the two issues of Dark Knight. So I came in and Mike Marks was the editor and I really just worked so hard to try and prove to him that I was ready. And I think he saw that. And a couple of weeks after I had finished those books, they had offered me a two-year exclusive with them. I had to finish up some stuff with Aspen first, but I signed and then I finished up that stuff with Aspen. And that's when they offered me Detective Comics. That was kind of like the next step of that adventure. And then eventually you were working on Justice League with issue 36, right before the Dark Side Wars. And I understand there were very tight deadlines for you. Almost no room to make any changes. It was that tight. And that must have been really rough on you. A lot of stress, a lot of long hours. How did you deal with that? Mm. You know, leading up to that point, I mean, I was going pretty good and I had figured out a pretty good rhythm of how to do my job and how to get 20 pages done in a month and keep on schedule. Like I think when I was working on Detective Comics, at one point I had done like eight consecutive issues without a fill-in and like I think I really won DC over with that because I was willing to work the long hours and and I was I was pulling seven days a week never taking a day off kind of thing like Mm -hmm. I did that for like maybe two years the only time I ever would take any time off might be to go to a convention and uh, you know at that time we didn't have kids and so we kind of were able to do that. And my wife was very understanding. She worked too. So we just kind of rolled with that. You know, I went from that. I did Batman Eternal. I wasn't happy on Batman Eternal. It was just like, I felt like I was just one artist within a whole bunch of artists doing this weekly comic. And I wasn't very happy. And, and then that's when Jeff called. The story goes that he called me one night at like midnight. He was texting me at midnight one night. And I'm going like, I'm looking at my wife. Why is Jeff Johns text? Like I, I had only like, maybe talk to him like once ever at a DC function before this. And so he's texting me. I'm like, Oh, I'm either in trouble or something good's going to happen. And so, uh, he called me that night. It was midnight my time. He's on West coast. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was like nine o'clock or whatever. And so, uh, we talked for a good hour that night and then he pitched me all of dark side war. And he said, oh, we're going to do this other thing first called the Amazo virus. We're going to do that first. That'll kind of build us up into Dark Side War. And so we were really excited about that. And shifting from like a single character book, like doing Batman to now doing a Justice League book. Like, yeah, it was I was working like 7 a.m. to sometimes nine, nine o'clock at night just to get dead. Yeah. But, you know, like I really felt this was my chance. This is what I've been working towards my whole life was to get an opportunity like this, not only to work on Justice League, but to work with arguably one of the biggest comic writers of the last 25 years. Jeff Johns, I I was like a huge fan of his reading his Green Lantern and Blackest Night and all these kinds of stories. And so to get to work with him, 
I really wanted to impress him and he saw that I was working hard. And so I just did it. And uh, when we were working on Dark Side War, my son was born. He was our firstborn. So he was born. And then after that, that's when I kind of made the decision I wanted to switch. I wanted to kind of slow down a bit um, because I really started to see that being a dad and, and having a family and family life was more important. I didn't want to work till nine o'clock at night anymore. I wanted to be done at five. And so I worked hard to get through the end of Dark Side War. And that was nuts. Like my son was very little at that time. And so I was okay with putting the time in, but I kind of promised my wife, like, okay, after this is done, I don't know if I'm going to do a monthly book like this anymore. I'm going to have to find a different way of doing my work. And so we got to the end of that, and Jeff and I had this conversation. DC had decided at that point they were going to move all their books from monthly to biweekly. Mm-hmm. He said, do you want to do biweekly? Do you want to do a biweekly book? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, me neither. And so that's when we decided, all right, we went out with a bang on Justice League 50. So that was kind of the shift of my career. And I kind of see my career pre-Dark Side War and then there's post-Dark Side War. And it's kind of like now I'm in the post. And I've really had a shift in how I think about my work and the kind of projects I want to do, especially going forward after Three Jokers. Before it was like, I just need a book out on the shelf every month. I need people to see my work every month. So I got to do, you know, nine books a year or eight books a year. Now it's, I just want to do quality work that really speaks instead of quantity of work. And, you know, there were some hit and misses over the last couple of years. I was able to do the Swamp Thing Winter Special and, and that won an Eisner Award, which is pretty cool. Never thought that would ever happen. And then uh, now we're doing Three Jokers and it's taken us a couple of years to do this book, but it's so close to coming out. And, you know, I was really able to just take my time with this. I think going forward, I want to keep doing these kinds of projects where I get some time and I can work hard on them and just do really high quality work instead of just quality work that subpar, right. you know. So I feel like Dark Side War kind of broke me. And just working at that level, I just wasn't happy and it wasn't the way I wanted to live my life. It was okay doing that for six or seven years up to that point to really carve out a career. But I felt like after Dark Side War, I had carved that out. And now I wasn't looking for work. Work was constantly looking for me. And so I could now kind of pick and choose what I wanted to do. And I could take some time and I could choose wisely the projects that I wanted to do. And so it's given me a lot of freedom, which is something that I've always wanted. I've looked for. It's been really nice. I know it's frustrating for the fans. They want to see the work come out, you know. We all want quality too. And you want to do your best. And we want to see your best. I'm cool with that. Yeah. Now it took several years for the three jokers to get completed. Now, is that because you were slowing down your pace or was that also due to Jeff's schedule as well? Yeah, I would say that's a little bit of both, but a lot of it was Jeff's schedule. After we finished Dark Side War, that's when he really was getting involved in a lot of the movie side of things. And so he wasn't really writing any comics. And we kept talking about Three Jokers like as if it was going to happen right away. But then it just didn't. And there were some times when I was very frustrated because I didn't really know if this project was going to happen. And I was getting offers from DC to take over Batman and do the Batman Monthly with Tom King. And I didn't really want to do Batman again unless it was with this Three Jokers project. 
I did do the button a couple issues there, and that was mostly because I knew it was tied in with Jeff's Doomsday Clock. And so I don't know how you can say no to like a Watchmen DC kind of crossover thing. So I was like, I got to do this. And so that proved to be a very good thing for me. Those books sold very well, and I think it reached a large group of the fan base. And so that drew a lot of people to me and to my art. And especially with those lenticular covers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was years there where it was kind of like we didn't know. And at at some points, we didn't even know if Three Jokers was ever going to happen. There there was a couple times where things just wasn't coming together. But again, going back to the whole like faith thing, you know, I just really felt it was meant to be. I knew what the story was right after Darkseid where like I can't talk about the story in too much detail, but one day I can. And there's a story plot line that happens in Three Jokers that it's meant to be. Jeff and I both had this idea separate from each other. And then when he pitched it to me, I said, this has to happen. Like, this is meant to be. This is not just coincidence, the story. I was the one who pushed him. Again, he was very busy, and he had his hands full with a lot of the stuff going on at DC and in the movies and the TV. He still, he still does. I was the one who kept pushing him, like, I really want to do this story. And then finally, I flew down to Los Angeles, and we sat in his office, and we knocked out the whole story in an afternoon. I started working on it, but even then it was slow. It's taken us two years, but in that first year, I didn't really draw too much. The script was coming in very slow. He was wrapping up, I think, I don't know, I don't even know what movie it was at that time. Uh, I don't know if it was Wonder Woman or something like that. It was very slow goings throughout that first year on the book. But then in the last year, I'd say we pumped out over 100 pages, and I, I worked at a pretty good pace this last year. A lot of it was, I think, his schedule, and a lot of it also was the fact that it was taking me. I didn't want to draw five pages a week. I said, you know, I want to draw maybe three pages a week. And it turned out that I was only able to do maybe like 2.5 pages a week. Uh, I wanted to take my weekends off and spend them with family. I don't even know if that really happened. I think I worked a lot, too, but... You know, this book is different, too, in the sense that it's a lot of nine-panel grids, and he really enjoyed that uh, when he did the Doomsday Clock series. He really enjoyed doing the nine-panel grids and kind of that old-school style of comic, whereas Doomsday Clock, you know, they used Watchmen as, as sort of their foundation for that book. We're using Killing Joke as kind of our foundation, and so I've been following a lot of the storytelling rules and the things that Brian Boland did with his layouts with this book. And so there's a lot of nine panel grids, which there are some in Killing Joke, but there's not a ton. But the, we did use a lot of them in Three Jokers because we really wanted to tell a very deep and dense story. And even though each book is like 50 pages, it actually feels like I probably drew eight or nine books worth of comic, you know, like yeah. in these three issues, like it's, it's three issues, but really like, if you look at the page counts, it would be like a six issue if they were released as like 22 page comics, right. It'd be like a six issue uh, series. But I feel like the amount of story that we have in is like a nine issue series. There's lots going on and lots of storytelling and, you know, going back to my like animation background and filmmaking, it feels like I'm drawing a movie, like, because you're, when you have nine panels on a page, you can do a little bit of, you know, nuanced storytelling characters moving in and out of sequences. You can hold on a scene and you can show like three of the same panels from the same scene, but you're changing the characters in the background or the character in the foreground. And 
it's a different kind of storytelling and it took me a while to kind of figure out how to use the nine panel grid effectively, but it's something that I really have enjoyed with this book. I don't know if we'll do too much of that again in the future. I kind of like the widescreen four or five panels per page, big panel layouts, but this was a, a different journey. And that is also why it took so long. I didn't want to cut any corners. Normally when you're working on a monthly, you're trying to figure out which panel you can make the biggest on the page and then make all the other ones small and then like do lots of close-ups so you don't have to worry about drawing all the other characters in the back. Like you're trying to figure out how am I going to draw this page in one day? And with this book, it was like if there's 10 cops in the background of the scene, then I'm trying to redraw those cops in every panel and where they would be moving around in the sequence. And like, I'm trying to draw everything accurate and much like Brian Ballin did in Killing Joke. There's like a scene where the comedian pre Joker Joker, he's in like a bar to dive. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I looked at that, all the different people in the background. I really stared at what was going on behind him. Like someone passed out at the bar getting sick. Yeah. So he really took his time and really drew everything. And I don't, I don't know if I have anything like this in this book that would be comparable on that level to what Brian Boland did because he's over above <laughs> like I think he's a master and I don't know if I hit that level with this book but I really tried to do that with this book I tried to not be lazy and draw every little thing draw every little person make every person unique and different and it's a different kind of mode that you get into when you're doing a book like that but I hope that when people read it they'll enjoy that they'll enjoy looking at things and, and looking at the backgrounds and and i hope it kind of absorbs them into the story well above and beyond all of that you've created or are going to create nine different covers for the <laughs> series and tell me how those all hang together the way they all kind of look at different aspects of the joker throughout his history mm-hmm all these things have really interesting kind of stories and so this one was that DC came to us and they said, we want to do like a retailer incentive kind of program like they'd done in the past. Like when they did like Detective Comics 1000, there was like 50 different retail incentive covers that could be sold. Mm And they were sold at specific stores across the nation. So stores could buy into this and they could get so many copies by it with their specific artists that they wanted. And they came to us and they said, we want to do that with your book. You know, it will help with sales. And I had talked to Jeff prior to this and I said, if they say that they want to do this, please back me and say, no, we don't want to do this. And the reason is, is because I didn't want to lose the integrity of this book. I'm okay with retailer incentive kind of things and, and having all kinds of different artists and drawing covers and what, like I've drawn a few of those before for different books, but this was something special. Like I've worked two years of my life on this book. I wanted it to live and die with me. You know, Brian Boland didn't have somebody doing variant covers for Killing Joke. Frank Miller didn't have somebody doing variants for Dark Knight Returns, right? And I'm not saying that this book or that I'm on that level of those guys, but I really like poured everything in my life into this book. I wanted DC to to just trust me because I really felt like we have product that can sell that will both critically and commercially successful. And they said, we want to do this retail incentive. We're going to ask the top artist to do a cover. I argued against it. And I think it caught him off guard. They even said, like, well, don't you want this book to sell a lot of copies? 
don't you want it to be successful? And I said, yeah, I do, but I want it to be successful with integrity. I don't want to sell out. You know, I don't want to sell out and do something like that and have all these different guys doing art for the book that I don't feel would be part of the spirit of this book. At this point, they had pushed the book back because of the whole coronavirus. They actually pushed it back twice. We wanted this book out way sooner. And now looking back on things, I'm actually glad we didn't have it out sooner. It's going to allow it to come out as one, two, three. We originally wanted this thing back out in April. And that would have been right at the mm. point where everything shut down and yeah. it wouldn't have been good. So uh, I, I believe everything happens for a reason. And Jeff and I, that's become sort of our slogan with this book. Everything happens for a reason. And so we were angry that it kept getting pushed back. But I think it's all going to turn out very well in the end. But I said, hey, the first issue doesn't come out till August and I'm done. And I got nothing else on my plate right now. If you need 20 covers, let me draw 20 covers, <laughs> right? Like, what else am I doing? Like, you know, like we're waiting to see what we're going to do next. But right now I'm like, I got the time. Let's come up with an idea and I can do how, however many covers. And they came back to me and they said, we want to do nine different variants. And I said, okay. One of the ideas I had very early on was that if this book went to a second or third printing for the second printing cover, I'd want to do something in the same vein as uh, standard covers, but like a different joker from history and one of the editors had a very similar kind of idea he's like well what if we do like something called like faces of the joker and it's like a photo shoot where the joker has these different poses and so we kind of combined the two and i said well what like we have these three jokers and we're kind of focusing on these three jokers from three different eras of batman and so you have like your golden age joker from batman number one from the 1940s and then you have sort of your prankster joker Death in the Family, that kind of Joker, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s Joker. And then you have kind of your modern Joker uh, slash killing joke Joker. And so you kind of have these three versions. And so uh, I was looking through all these books and I'm like, there's so many ideas. He, he wears so many different costumes in these books. So why don't we continue on with these close-ups and actually just draw the Joker in these different looks? And I sold them on it by essentially doing a bunch of really tight layouts. I just sat down one day and I just rocked through all these layouts, laying them out in this really nice kind of graphic kind of thing showing like, here's all of the covers we have so far. And then here's what these covers could look like. And wouldn't this be really cool to see all of these Joker covers together? I really believe like fans will really like this and I feel it shows integrity. And I don't think anybody's ever done something like this. When was the last time you've seen somebody do this many covers for one series, you know? doesn't happen, but because we had the time, it afforded me the time to do this. So they bought into it, and they really liked it. I finished all of those, and we're doing a couple other variant kind of ideas using some of the art and doing some really neat and funky sort of printing technique things that they'll be revealing sometime soon, but... They trusted me, and they've actually given me a lot of creative say in how I want this book to look. They gave me say, I helped come up with the logo. They had given me a couple different logos, and I actually mashed two or three logo designs together, and was like, I really like this one. Like, this is kind of neat. And they've allowed me to design the back cover and design all kinds of different things that normally would be out of my hands. And so I'm very appreciative that they taken the time to kind of listen to how sort of my vision and Jeff's just pretty much the whole time Jeff's just said, 
whatever Jay wants, let him do because I trust what he would do visually, and that that's very cool as well. You know, to be in that position with Jeff that he trusts me on that. And you're working with Brad Anderson again on colors, who also worked with you on Justice League. So tell me what he's bringing to the table. Yeah, finding a colorist in comics that you really trust is tough. Right from day one, I've always kind of known what I wanted. I wanted my books to be colored. And Brad Anderson is the guy that I feel really gets me. And the other colorist was uh, Peter Steigerwald from Aspen Comics. Uh, I really feel like he understands what I would want out of colors. But because he leads Aspen, he just doesn't have the time to do lots of DC monthly work. And so Brad and I clicked right off the bat. And uh, I really loved what he was doing with Gary Frank. And that's why I really wanted to bring him in. And we started working, I think, pre-Justice League. We were doing Batman Eternal together. He came in and he was coloring that book. And so we built up a really good relationship. I don't really need to tell him what I want. I'll give him color notes because while I'm working on the book, I do have a vision and I do have like, well, uh, this part of the book I want in these colors. And then in this part of the book, I want it to shift to this for this kind of a mood. And then sometimes I'll just be like, I don't know what I want for this. So just do whatever your gut tells you to do. And he just delivers uh, every single time. And I've put him through lots of back and forth with this book. Like even today, like I went through a bunch of stuff from issue one that I've been unhappy with. Like I drew a lot of issue one almost two years ago. And so I'm looking at some different panels and I'm going, I could draw that face way better. I know that it means that Brad has to sit there and now recolor a part of the book, but he'll do it without grumbling. And he does it because I think he sees that this is something special and it feels different. It feels special. He's a really good guy. He's a fellow Canadian as well. So we talk a lot of hockey. And yeah, again, once you find those creatives that you really click with, it's really important to kind of just stick with them and trust them. And, you know, it's just like Jim Lee. He's worked with Scott Williams and Alex Sinclair for years. He trusts them and he knows that they're going to deliver for him. And Brad always delivers. And if I don't feel like something's strong enough, I can say to Brad, like, hey, can you boost this or can you come back at this with a little bit of a different flair and he'll do it and uh, he'll make it better. He wants to put his best work out there as well. I'm looking through some of the pages right now from issue one. And one of the things that I really wanted him to do, and I wasn't really sure how it would work is that in the original killing joke, the original printing of killing joke has some really wacko colors. The reprints of the book since I don't know, a couple of years back have been the Brian Boland reprint where he recolored everything. And I like that version better. I like Brian Boland's version better because the colors and the tones and stuff that he chooses is more in line with what my gut likes, like what I would go for if it was my work. That's how I want my comics to look. I kind of had challenged Brad and I said, is there a way that we could bring in some of the nuttiness that was in that original killing joke even if it's just for certain scenes where the lighting could be a little off or a little weird there's a lot of yellows and like pinks and neons kind of used in that original uh john higgins he was the guy who originally colored the book uh original killing joke and so he's been able to do that in subtle ways i don't know if fans will pick up on that maybe some will but i see it because it's just a little bit different than what i would normally go for 
but I think it works with this book and it adds a really eerie sense to some of the sequences and some of the scenes. And that's something that a really good colorist can bring to the work. You can challenge him with little things like that. And he'll look at these original Killing Joke colors and then he'll be able to bring some of that out into the work. I can't sing enough praises for Brad. He's Colorists are very underrated in comics. It's a sad thing. He's a superstar colorist. He always hits deadline and he does everything to the fullest of his ability. He's somebody who deserves lots of high praise. I can't wait to read it because it sounds like it's certainly been worth the wait. And it's going to be probably some of your best work ever. It's going to make a big mark in the industry, I think. I think it's going to be one of those stories that stands the test of time. Not to take anything away from Brad, but it'll probably wind up being one of those Batman noir, the black and white art at some point. I wouldn't be surprised if DC did that if it works out really well for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You always want to be humble about your work. I was always taught to be very humble and, you know, not to get ahead of yourself and I have a feeling in my heart, like just what you said, like I have a feeling like this is going to be something big, but then again, you never know. Like, I don't know. Like until people read the book, like I was just thinking about this today. It's like, I hope that this hasn't been overhyped because it's been such a long time coming and then people will read it and maybe they won't be as impressed by it. I'm really just trying to keep a humble attitude with it. I believe in the story. We fought so hard for this story because we really, especially the ending, we really feel like we have an ending of this book that's going to get people talking. We're doing some stuff at the end of this book that I've always wanted to see in Batman, and I don't think I've ever read what our ending is. And it's going to be controversial. There's some people who are going to be angry at it. Uh, this whole book's going to be controversial. It's very different from anything I've ever really wanted to tackle. This is a very mature book. This book is not for kids. I've broken a lot of my rules. I have set rules for myself of what I want to work on and what I didn't want to work on. And very right from the beginning, Jeff, who knew my rules, said, Jay, would you be willing to break a couple of your rules? Because I feel like I really want to tell a deep emotional story. And we got to go to some pretty dark places in this. And would you be willing to break some of your rules for the good of the story? And knowing what the whole journey of the story is, I felt it was okay that I would break some of those rules because I knew what was at the end of the story. Like I knew where everything is leading toward. I don't know if I'll ever do a book this mature ever again. This book is black label and it's violent. If you've read Killing Joke, then it's kind of in that vein Killing Joke was a very mature book for its time. And I don't think we go above what's in Killing Joke. We don't push it that much farther, but it's definitely a story that's on a different level, both emotionally and also thematically. It's really a book that digs into these characters and the scars and both the physical and emotional scars that that Batman and Red Hood and Barbara Gordon, Batgirl have kind of suffered with. We're trying to really get into these characters and into the struggles that they've had with different traumas, especially at the hands of the Joker. And so that leads you down some pretty dark roads. But we really feel like we have a an ending that people are really hopefully will respond to. It's something I feel is, hasn't been done before. Well, we won't have long to wait to read it because it's coming out the first one, August 26th. Yes, it's coming. I like I said, I've been I've been going back and tweaking some stuff because, like I said, I'm going off to my brother's cottage this weekend, and and everything has to be in very shortly after I get back. So we're finishing up all the little things from issue one. 
Uh, and then I'm going to move on to issue two. And because we've had more time, we've actually been going back over the story and we've been making little changes that we think are going to make the story stronger. So I'm actually going to go back and redraw a couple pages in issue two because we feel like we came up with a better idea. <laughs> and so it's like, well, we got the time. Like it all fits. Let's change that and let's make that part cooler. And then that carries over into issue three. And we're going to make a couple changes there. Not too many. There's only like a couple panels. Again, like this has given us the opportunity to do this. I'll never have an opportunity like this again. We're going to be able to sit there and look at all of these books and be able to essentially uh, read them as one big graphic novel before the first issue even hits. That affords us the chance to make these books better. I want to give the fans the best book that I can possibly give them. You know, I think that that's something that's missing from comics. It's been missing from comics for a while. I feel like comics, it's just a lot of quantity over quality. And it's just like, just need to get stuff out there to make some money. And who really cares if it's good or bad or whatever. And, you know, you get a few books here and there that really shine, but I really feel like comic book fans deserve something that is, Uh, high quality and that there's been a lot of love and attention poured into and i hope when they read this they'll see that i certainly appreciate you putting all the effort into it i look forward to seeing it and i also appreciate your time so if you have a few moments we're going to kick back with the creator where i just ask you a few fun questions i ask all my guests awesome sounds good what do you do for recreation uh hockey i've been enjoying going for bikes playing with my kids doing video game stuff and one of the hobbies that i had over the last year was uh painting dungeons and dragons and like war gaming miniatures board game miniatures and stuff like that it's funny like ever since the lockdown you'd think i would be doing that a lot i haven't touched any of that stuff (laughs) since the lockdown happened but prior to that yeah prior to that i was like (laughs) doing all this stuff i think it's because i haven't been playing any games of dungeons and dragons with my friends because nobody can come over so i haven't felt the need to really do any of that stuff (laughs) that's yeah that those are some of the things i like to do okay what was your favorite birthday and why my 30th birthday was really fun Uh, it was a couple years back we went out to california my wife was pregnant with our firstborn and so it was kind of our last escape before Mm -hmm. the baby comes kind of thing. And so we did a a really nice road trip through California and uh, visited all, all these really awesome uh, towns and beach towns. And just, it was just a really great vacation. And I wanted to do that. Our plan was that once I finished all of these books, we were going to do that again. And we were going to take a road trip actually starting in Las Vegas and then maybe driving out to California and then driving up the Pacific coast all the way up, to Northern California. That was what our plan was. And then all of this stuff happened. So we weren't able to do that. But uh, yeah, that was a really good birthday. I really enjoyed that one. That's what we called the baby moon. We went to uh, Las Vegas for our baby moon before the first one was born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's what it was. It was a baby moon. <laughs> now, thinking back when you were younger, say a teenager, 12 to 14, what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? I had a lot of Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky was my fate, was my hero growing up. I had a lot of hockey posters uh, on the wall. Being a Canadian kid growing up, you know, your first dream as a Canadian kid, especially who plays hockey, is that you want to play in the NHL. And so probably around that time, I was kind of figuring out, uh, probably not going to play in the NHL. 
but uh, Wayne Gretzky was still my favorite. He's still my favorite hockey player, and I, I look up to him very much, even just as a person, and uh, he's still one of my heroes in life. I, I didn't have many posters. I, I don't know if it was my mom didn't let me put up many things in my room, but I remember I had a couple Wayne Gretzky posters, and those were pretty much all I had on my wall. Well, you must have had some books. If you were stuck on a deserted island, what is the one book you want to have with you for pleasure to read? That's a tough one. The one that comes to mind is Lord of the Rings, but I've only ever read it once. Like it was right before the movies came out. So I read all these books, maybe in high school, and I just loved it. Like I loved every minute of it, but I haven't read it again. And I think I would like to sit down and reread it. I think you could reread Lord of the Rings and uh, you could read it probably multiple times and still pick up brand new things from the book. Maybe something like that. Not a really big reader. I'll pick up books every once in a while and get in kind of like a groove where I'll read. Like right now, I've been reading a lot of books on folklore and uh, Bigfoot and Celtic folklore and folklore that's in the Americas. And I'm really interested in that uh, kind of stuff, uh, some UFO stuff. I enjoy that. So I've been really on a kick where I've been reading through uh, this author, his name is Timothy Renner, and he writes all these books on old newspaper stories to do with like Bigfoot and that kind of thing. And so I've been reading through those. But uh, if it came to comic books, though, if I had to pick one comic book to bring on a desert island to read, it might be Batman the Long Halloween. Oh, OK. Yeah, I really love that book. It's one of those stories that really, uh, really spoke to me. And I've reread that book a bunch of times. And every time I read it, I really enjoy it. And so that and there's a couple of the Hellboy books that I really have enjoyed. And I've reread a bunch of times. And I find a lot of times I'll read a comic once and then that's it. But those books, I've gone back over and over and over again and and really have enjoyed them. Yeah, there's only a few that I would go back and read repeatedly. Other than when I was really little, I would read the same book several times because I spent my quarter mm -hmm. and <laughs> I would get my money's worth. <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean. I used to read a lot of those uh, books about Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, the Yeti, UFOs, <laughs> all that stuff when I was a kid too. Yeah, yeah. I really love those stories i would say that i believe in that stuff being a christian i do believe that the spiritual realm operates on a very different way than we actually would think i kind of believe that some of that folklore and some of those really weird stories i do think that there's a possibility that they could be spiritual in nature and, and even the bigfoot stories there's a weird spiritual paranormal angle to it that just doesn't seem to make sense and so those are kinds of things that i've always been very interested in i've really been diving into the folklore stuff because one day i would love to write and draw a creator own book or something where i could dig into some folklore and mix it with comic book fantasy and all this kind of stuff. And so I've been kind of brewing up an idea in my head for a while now. And I'm kind of using these books as an excuse to, you know, research some of these things, you know, it's, it's interesting stuff. This is completely off the wall. If DC were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? Probably my drawing table, because that's where I it would Spend be a, a lot desk, of time. <laughs> desk and a chair and a drawing table and a pencil. You know, by my computer, because I draw a lot of my stuff digitally. So it'd be my computer, because that's all I do. It seems like that's all I do as I sit and I do that. You know, a cup of coffee. A cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea beside me. I'm pretty boring. That's a lot of my life. <laughs> that is my next question, which I think you've just answered for me. Your beverage of choice. Is that coffee or tea? I love coffee in the morning, and then I have tea during the day. 
those would be my beverages of choice. I'd have to say black, black coffee and black tea. I don't put anything in it. Hardcore. Okay. Yeah, hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> what book that you read changed the way you think? The easy one for me would be the Bible, being a Christian. When it comes to comic books, though, I will say that the book that was kind of the catalyst to me wanting to get into comics was Batman Hush. I had read lots of comics prior to that book, but when I read that book, I don't know when that came out, 2000. I was probably in high school when I read that, and it blew my mind. I had known of Jim Lee, and I had at that point, I wasn't really hardcore into comics. There was no comic shops around me, so every once in a while, my dad would bring me a comic that he would see here and there. But when I bought Batman Hush and I read it, I looked at that artwork and I said to myself, this is how a comic book should look. And if I could draw comics, I would want to draw them to look similar to this, that this kind of feeling. I've been chasing that. It's kind of like I want that feeling in my work that I got when I was 14 or however old I was at that time and read that book. I've always wanted my work to kind of speak to the 14-year-old kid in every grown-up or in every reader. And that's how Jim Lee's artwork makes me feel. It's just got everything you want. It's big and it's bold and it's energetic and it's over the top it's visually beautiful and appealing uh, it's not super realistic but it's also not super cartoony it's just kind of that style that just screams comic book and you know i've tried to bring some of that influence into my work especially with batman and when i read that book that's when i kind of really started to think i would love to become a comic book artist or or maybe Maybe this would be something I could try and do. Maybe I could draw my own comic one day. Yeah, so that was really a book that really changed kind of the course of the direction of my life and where I kind of wanted to go artistically. And my final question, what do you want people to know about you that they may not know? That's a tough one. I'm a pretty simple guy. I know myself when I would see comic book artists and whatnot, I would always, especially at conventions, you'd think that they're super special and they must live like these exciting lives. But really, like, <laughs> I, I'm a pretty simple, boring guy. I love my family. I really try to make sure that my family is number one. Comic books to me is my job. I don't know. I think a lot of people think that because you work in comics, you think they're the most important thing. Like, I think fans think of comics as way more important than what I think they are. <laughs> like, I just, to me, it's just I want to just tell a good story. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been pretty open with who I am and, and what I like to do and what I'm into, especially through social media and interacting with fans. But um, I'm a pretty normal, everyday guy. And I, I try to just be down to earth. And I'm a comic book fan, just like every other comic book fan i get excited for the same things that comic book fans get excited for i get excited when i see a brand new comic from jim lee or greg capullo or you know whoever i get pumped up like a comic book fan does or, or when this movie's coming out or this tv show's coming out i'm just a comic book fan who was uh, lucky and blessed enough to land in this industry and I'm working very hard to try and do my best because I want to make sure that fans get their money's worth out of my books when they purchase them. That's kind of my philosophy of life. And I, I don't know if that was a very fun way of answering that question, but I guess that's my answer. I don't know. <laughs> we're glad you're in the industry and we were glad that you want to do something that you would want to read 
And when mm. you were 14 years old, because that's what we all really want to connect with is that 14 year old person who really enjoyed comics. Mm. And they're going to really enjoy Batman the Three Jokers issue one, finally coming August 26th. Jason, thank you so much for your time and being on Creator Talks. Awesome. I had a blast and uh, hopefully we can do it again one day. All right. I'll be back in two weeks with another guest. I'll be sticking with the Bat family. I'll be speaking with a seasoned veteran writing two Batman-related titles, one set in the present day and one in the future. And if you haven't guessed already who my guest will be, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod to find out who it will be. All shall be revealed. And so you don't miss a single interview, please subscribe. It's free. Use your favorite podcast catcher. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. It goes a long way to helping the show increase its reach. I hope you're enjoying your comics. I hope you're getting your comics because since DC is no longer distributing through Diamond, my local comic shop has had some trouble getting their books. They've been shorted on a few titles. I'll have to wait a while to read some of my favorite DC titles, but that's okay. I can continue to hunt down those back issues I've been looking to read and go back and reread books in my collection. Don't forget, I share books from my personal collection on Saturdays and Sundays, my Silver Age, Bronze Age, and Copper Age comics. Maybe these will bring back some memories for you. I'll let you know why that book is significant to me, or maybe point out some of the creators working on the book that you may not have been aware of. Maybe you have these books. Share your memories about them with me on social media. Just follow me at Creator Talks Pod. And if you want to reach me directly through email, that's creatortalks at gmail.com creatortalks at gmail.com I want to thank you again for listening to the show. I'm doing my very best to bring you the very best guests and the very best conversations. And besides that rating and review, word of mouth is one of the best ways to grow a podcast audience. So please tell a friend, tell a family member if they're into comics and they want to know more about the creators behind those comics. Please encourage them to give this show a try. Well, that's all for now. For Creator Talks, I've been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.